0: It's a normal, beautiful day in Oregon, May 1983. After dinner, you decide to take your kids out to see a friend in the country. It's already almost 9 p.m. when you arrive. The kids play with their horse a bit, and then on your way back home, you decide to do a little sightseeing. You turn off the normal road and head towards the river, hoping the kids would love to see the moonlight on the water. But you quickly realize the kids are asleep, so you turn back around and head for home. In the middle of the secluded, dark road stands a man, waving his hands frantically. You pull over and get out to help him. He clearly needs assistance of some kind. He demands your car, and you tell him no. So he reaches into the car, and in horror, you listen to the pop, 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 the sound of him shooting your three children. When he demands your car again, you pretend to throw the keys in the brush. He shoots at you twice, hitting you once in the arm. You push him, get in the car, and drive away as fast as you can. You can hear the cries of your youngest three-year-old in the back seat. One of your daughters isn't moving. The other, you can hear her choking on her own blood. You keep telling her to roll onto her stomach, but can't risk the time it would take to pull over. By the time you pass a bridge over the river on the way to the hospital, the choking noises have stopped. At some point, you realize you've been shot in the arm and wrap your arm in a beach towel that was left in the car the week before. You continue to drive the children to the hospital as fast as you can. How could an ordinary day end so horrifically? What kind of maniac would do such a thing? These are just a few of the many questions that would arise from the telling of this story. I'm your guest host, Lisa. With me, I have my sister, Marina, and this is a Baby Break episode of Grimm.
1: All right. Right up front. I'm just going to say I don't I don't like thinking about my children choking on blood in my backseat. So uh, thanks for taking me there right out of the fucking gates.
0: You're welcome. It's going to be a good one. Yeah. buckle up. So
1: this is um, our second guest host. This is my sister Lisa. Hey. And she also accidentally did a two-parter, which um I love it. I just I'm like everybody can do all the research and give my poor broken brain a break because we all know I have colander brain. So thank you. Um, But before we get into Lisa's case, we have some Patreon shout outs. And once again, man, we are feeling the love and we just adore each and every one of you. So first up, we have Sarah P. Woo! Sarah, we love you. Thank you so much. We have Sydney D., Go thank Sydney. you, Sydney. We love you. Jessica C. Woo-woo. Jessica, thank you Thanks so much. Jessica. We love you. We have Michelle. Michelle, Ooh, we love Michelle you. Michelle the boss. Okay, in this next one, I'm so sorry. I feel like I'm going to pronounce it wrong. Um, I'm just going to say them all. It might be Cameron. It might be Camreen. It might be Camerini, Camreeny. Cameron, we love you. Woo! Woo we love you. No thank matter
0: you what so your much. name is, you're
1: the best. Um, you can message me the pronunciation and I'll do it again because I'm really sorry because I'm sure I just murdered it, but it's beautiful. I just don't know how to say it. I'm going to go with Cameron. Cam- Cameron Y. Woo! We love you. <laughs> Gregory M. Woo! Woo Gregory, Greg. thank you so much. We love you so much. We have Chris M. Chris, Ooh, Ann, Chris we love you. Thank you so much. And Betty K. Yeah, Betty, Betty. We love you so much, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, if you want to support us, just go to patreon.com and search Grim Cole and a True Crime Podcast. And you can get an awesome shout out or you can sign up for our highest tier and um, join our Discord, which is super fun. And we have 12 bonus episodes out now. So if you're looking for some more Grim during this baby break episode, during this baby break, um, check it out.
0: And that's all I have. Go ahead, Lisa. All right. So I'm going to start by listing my sources. I got pretty Mm -hmm. much all of my information from the book, Small Sacrifices by Anne Rule. Um, I also watched the two movies that were based on this book, also called Small Sacrifices, where um, Diane was played by Farrah Fawcett. So this is in like 1989. Uh, I did use Google and internet articles for some clarification, additional kind of fill-in information Um, But if you're interested in this case, I highly recommend Rule's book. Uh, She's a great storyteller. She's pretty thorough. And this is the case of Diane Downs? This is the case of Diane Downs, yes, called Small Sacrifices. I remember this case,
1: sort of. Sort of. Enough to know she's fucking psycho. Yeah,
0: buckle up. It's going to be a good one. Buckle up, buttercup. Buttercup. All right, so I'm going to start at the McKenzie Wilmette Hospital in Springfield, Oregon on May 19, 1983. The ER personnel on staff were Rosie Martin RN, Shelby Day LPN, Judy Patterson was the receptionist, and Dr. John Mackey was the ER doctor. Uh, they had the four to midnight shift, um, except for Judy, who was scheduled to clock out at 10.30 p.m. So Judy was just about to leave. She had grabbed her purse and her sweater. Um, when there was a honking outside the ER in the drive through someone was just laying on their horn in the car. So she propped the two doors open and the two nurses who had been working on paperwork on what was kind of a normal, steadily busy day night at the ER headed outside. When they got outside, parked under the rain roof is a small red compact car and a blonde woman tells them, Somebody just shot my kids. The two women rushed into action. Uh, Rosie found a girl child lying across the right rear seat. She pulled her from the car and rushed her inside. She kind of realized the gravity of the situation. So she tells the receptionist to call a code. Uh, Code four was called, which was just to like summon all of the available personnel to the emergency room to assist. Shelby and Dr. Mackey find a young boy in the backseat behind the driver's seat no more than a toddler, and he's bleeding and crying. Dr. Oh. Mackey quickly determined uh, that they were dealing with shots to the chest for these children, so he sees the third ch- a third child in the front seat and thought that Shelby did too. So he races the boy child into the ER and directs the receptionist, Judy, to find Dr. Wilhite. Shelby was about to go back into the ER when the mom kind of clears her throat and tells her that Sherry was there. Shelby was super confused and then realizes that the mother's pointing to the front seat. There was a child curled up on the front seat floor, face down underneath a postal worker sweatshirt. So she uh-huh. finds the third child and rushes her inside, noticing that she's pretty much dead weight. Oh. Uh, the mother of the three children had followed Shelby into the trauma room. and was just kind of standing there, dry-eyed, kind of looking around. Shelby assumed she was in shock, so she calls Judy, the receptionist, to come remove her. The mother went without putting up a fight. Um, And sat on a stretcher outside the room and the ER filled up with personnel pretty quickly from respiratory therapists, ICU nurses, even janitors, anybody that could comp and kind of lend a hand, getting bags of blood, propping up doors. It was just complete chaos in this trauma room with these three young children. I couldn't imagine doing that job. No, to see these kids come in, and especially the little boy who's three, he's crying oh, and wailing. Oh, he was three? Yeah, he's crying and wailing. He's the only one that's kind of conscious. And um, how old is the one that you're calling girl child? There's two girl children. One is eight and one is seven.
1: Which one was curled up in the front? Sherry? Sherry, the eight-year-old. Uh, eight, the seven-year-old. Seven-year-old,
0: and the eight-year-old was in was the back. Was in the back seat, but she wasn't really conscious. Oh, three. Yeah, and the three-year-old's just crying and wailing. Um, they do that sometimes. They do on a normal basis, (laughs) but I, I, I suppose being shot would make them It's justified here for sure. Would make them wail. Yeah. Um, it was actually sheer luck that they could get so many physicians back to the hospital that late at night on a weeknight. So, uh, David Scott Miller was actually a pediatrician at the hospital and he was normally well back home by the time this, this time of night, but he had just been kind of delayed over and over again. And he was walking to his car when he heard the commotion and heard shots and kids. Oh shit. So he raced back to the ER to help Mm -hmm. out. Um, the receptionist, Judy, was able to get a hold of Dr. George Foster, who was a pedi- pediatric surgeon at another hospital, and he raced over to Mackenzie Wilmot. <clears throat> and then she was also able to get a hold of Dr. Steve Wilhite, who was a thoracic surgeon requested by Dr. Mackey. He had literally just pulled into his driveway when his beeper went off, and the specifics were children shot, so he reversed back out of his driveway And he made a 20 minute drive in eight minutes. He just, holy shit. He just beelined it back to that hospital. So they were.
1: Just as an aside, that is one thing. And this is just for all the gremlins just to think about in the future. You know how when you're on the highway and you're in this fast lane (laughs) and you're going 75 and someone is up your ass and you're like, screw you, I'm going 75. (laughs) It's like, you know? What if it's that doctor rushing back to the hospital to save children? What if it's somebody who's trying to get to the hospital for their pregnant wife? Just, you know, just assume the best of people and just move over you know know that's
0: where you took that i'm usually the person that's like screw you i'm gonna go
1: 70 now which i do that too sometimes but like just you know you just never know that doctor was rushing to save someone's life and i bet you to make that drive he was up someone's ass so yeah he they
0: they said it said it when he like went 80 the whole way back just to cut the time as much as he could just food for thought you're welcome yeah (laughs) (laughs) all right (laughs) So luckily, all three children were surrounded by adults that were working on them feverishly in the trauma room. Uh, Shelby tried to intubate the little girl the mother called Sherry that was in the front seat, uh, but she just kept coming up with only clotted blood. Um, Dr. Mackey tried as well, and he found two bullet wounds in the back of the child, one over the right shoulder blade and one just under the left shoulder blade. The heart monitor leads that they had attached to the child showed no signs of a heartbeat. The child had come in already deceased. That's so Um, sad. And that's the seven-year-old. The other girl was motionless, and uh, David Miller, the doctor, worked feverishly over her. She had two small-caliber bullet wounds in in the left chest. One bullet had gone through and exited just below her shoulder blade in the back, and the other bullet made a larger wound and was still in the body. There was a third through and through near the base of her thumb. She was almost dead. She had no registered blood pressure and was only taking a few gasping shallow breaths. They tried to intubate her and get air into her lungs, but an x-ray showed there was a massive hemorrhage filling her left lung with blood and her right lung was collapsing. Oh my god. What caliber <clears throat> bullet was it? Did it say? It was it did, I didn't say, but it's a 22. Okay. So they're pretty small caliber bullets. Yeah. Um she was turning blue. And her skin was cold. Uh, Her eyes had initially reacted to light when she came in, but even that was fading. She looked dead. Her heart stopped beating, but Miller refused to give up on her. He pumped her with sodium bicarb to keep her heart going just as Height arrived Height also refused to give up on this little girl no longer who no longer had a pulse or a blood pressure. Oh, my gosh. He plunged tubes into her left lung to help remove the blood and into her right lung, which had collapsed. Um, he inserted a CVP line, which hitting an artery first try was a good news because uh, her blood vessels could have collapsed from lack of blood. Oh, my gosh. Um, she was pumped with O negative blood and miraculously her heartbeat started again. Her people started to react again, and she had a blood pressure again. She wasn't out of the woods. Um, Her right lung had reinflated, but her left lung was just still filling with blood just as rapidly as they put it into her. Yeah, so they'd put the blood into her, and then it'd go into her lung and out the tube just pretty quickly. It was... 11.45 11:45 p.m. before they were, she was stable enough to go off to surgery. And what time did she, they come in? 10:40. Okay. And even then, one of the respiratory therapists had to breathe for her as they wheeled her off with doctors Will Height and Miller. Oh my God! These, these doctors are heroes. They, those two doctors did not give up on this little girl. She lived because of their tenacity. They just were not hmm. having it. Um, Will Height performed surgery. He found the hole in her lung and repaired it. By the time he had done that, though. So much of her blood had been lost. It was like a total transfusion, oh which can carry its own complications when you bleed out like that. And we'll talk about that a little later. Okay. Uh, she woke up from surgery pretty quickly and was terrified, but responded to nurses prompts and was alive. So holy shit. Yeah. She pretty much went from death to stable alive. and alive. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, but she was hooked up to all sorts of tubes, so she couldn't really say anything. She had tubes and breath masks and stuff, but if the nurses talked to her, she kind of responded to them. so okay. Um, Dr. Mackey and Foster continued to work on the little boy. Um, Mackey had worked on resuscitation from the moment he carried him into the ER. He had inserted a CVP line, which is just kind of like a pick line that goes deeper into the artery to deliver meds quicker. okay um, than like a iV. The boy had a small bullet hole entry inches to the right of the spinal column. Oh, boy. That's not where you want a bullet hole. No. And it was a near contact wound. The doctors could see black powder burns outside the hole. Um wow. So he was shot very close, close range. Close range, right. The small boy's heart was racing, and he was sobbing and wailing. He couldn't oh. take a deep breath, so they inserted a chest tube, and air and blood gushed out of his lung, which allowed him to breathe easier. He was stable, but the bullet had entered right near the T6 and T7 vertebrae, um, which is kind of in your upper back, your if thoracic you, spine. Yeah, if you think of like you know T1 is at the top, so T6 and seven is not that far down. It's where your Quasimodo hunch would be,
1: <laughs> maybe. <laughs> yeah, so your cervical spine is your neck, your L spine is your lumbar, and your thoracic spine is right where your right where your poor posture Quasimodo hunches.
0: <laughs> um he would be fine from his arms up but if the bullet caused spinal cord damage or spinal cord swelling there was a chance he could never walk again oh and that's not something they would know for a while yeah so judy's job the reception was was to interview and take care of the mother um she told judy their name was elizabeth downs but she went by her middle name diane and that's how we know her mm-hmm. she told her the three children were hers steve and danny who was age 3, Cheryl Lynn age 7, and Christy Ann age 8. Judy noted that she had a certain flatness of expression holding in all of her emotions in like a shock-like state.
1: Wait, did you say Cheryl Ann or Sherry Ann?
0: Cheryl Lynn. And Christy (laughs) Ann. You're like none of the above. (laughs) None of the above. Wait, so so her name was Cheryl and the mother had pointed to her and said Sherry is in the front. Okay. But her name is Cheryl. Sherry! (laughs) <laughs> Share it, baby, and there's our uh, musical break that <laughs> we have every grim episode. One of seventeen. Go ahead. <laughs> um. Oh, so she had a certain flatness and kind of like a shock-like state. So Judy called the police, afraid that the man that Diane said was out there might still come back to the ER to try and finish the job. They, right. No one knew who this man was or why he did what he did. Right. Um, So she was concerned for safety reasons that they wanted the police there as quickly as possible. And so while Judy's on the phone with the police, Diane kept saying, I need to call my parents. I want to call my parents. So Judy tells her like, hold on, I'm on the phone with the police and asks her to kind of retell the story so she could relay it to them. She told her just a few little details, something about Mohawk and Marcola and somebody shot my kid's, so Judy's trying to relay these like little tidbits of information to the police. What the well, hell is Mohawk? It turns out to be a road, but oh, okay. like she's trying to find out where this happened, and, and Diane's just like Mohawk and Marcola and okay. Someone. How old
1: is how old is Diane?
0: Did you tell us? I did not tell you. Can you tell me? So uh, she was twenty-seven at this at this point in her life.
1: Okay. So um, oh that I mean that is shit. That is pretty young to have a seven and an eight-year-old. Yes, she had her children very young. I would want to call my mommy, too.
0: Yes. <laughs> um. Yeah, she was pretty young, but she was also acting quite strange. Judy's on the phone with this police department trying to relay that something is happening. They need her- them here. And she's she just kind of was wandering around. She wandered into the bathroom and washed her hands.
1: Super fucking weird, but I do try. We talk about this all the time, like trying not to judge people in moments of distress and terror and adrenaline because the human brain is a magical thing that does weird things to people.
0: And I think to give them credit, all of the people in the beginning of this story all have quotes of them saying the same thing. Like Like, she's in shock. She's maybe she's in shock. Like everybody handles things differently. Like it was super weird, but who knows how you would deal with that as a young mother and Mm -hmm. your three children. Like who knows? So everyone kind of points out like she was doing this weird thing, but I don't know. I don't know how I would react if my three kids have just been shot. So she's kind of wandering around. She goes into the bathroom and she washes her hand. And then she kind of wanders back towards the trauma room, uh, which Judy did not obviously want her to go back to the trauma room. Yeah. Um, so she pulls her into like a nearby triage room. And that's when she notices that she has this brightly colored beach towel wrapped around her arm. Uh, so Diane had apparently been shot on the arm on her right forearm. No one was currently available to help her. All the nurses were rushing around, so Judy kind of sterilized the wound and wrapped it best she could. She was definitely not a nurse, so she kind of used some betadine and just mm. wrapped it up a little bit. I'm um, guessing it was superficial. So it was not. It, oh. actually, she broke her arm. It was oh, not shit. superficial. Yeah. Um. She asked Diane what happened, and so Diane tells her the same story that was in the intro. Um, except in Diane's story to Judy, the kids were laughing and talking and she had been laughing at something Danny said and talking to Christy and then the whole man thing happens. And then she says to Judy, it's a terrible thing to be laughing one minute and then have something like this happen to you. And Judy doesn't even know what to say. She just kind of pats her on her good arm and is like, let's go call your parents now because they're all, they, uh, no one knows what to do with like this whole situation with these four, three children. And so when her dad picks up, she tells him, he shot the kids. He shot me too. And then tells Judy, they're on their way. Okay. So her parents rushed to the hospital. They lived about two miles away. Her mother got there first, but her father actually had to turn back around to get his dentures. Uh, because mm. they left the house in haste in the middle of the night. Um, and he had forgotten them. But he was the postmaster of this town. And so he didn't want to be seen out in public, like, without his dentures. So he, okay. <laughs> he kind of dropped the mom off ran back home and to get his dentures and then he'll come back later. He's like BRB forgot my teeth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You get out and go figure <laughs> out what's going on. So her mother gets in and is super confused as to what has happened. She mm-hmm. had watched Danny all day. Like she usually does. So she watches Danny during the day. The kids go, the girls go to school and then Diane comes back after work, picks him up. Most of the time they eat dinner right at the mom's house with mm-hmm. the mom and dad. Um, tonight that night, they the parents had somewhere to be that night they had some sort of social engagement so diane picked the kids up after supper and took them home for supper and so diane explains that she went to marcola to see a friend um and then her father arrives just as the police arrive and so diane sees the police officer who which was which was rick rich charbonneau and says it's about time you got here there's a maniac out there shooting people and she's all real mad that it took them so long in reality, it had been eight minutes since the police had been called. Diane was freaking out or the yes, mom? Yes, Diane. Okay. Diane was freaking out saying, like, there's a maniac out there shooting people. How would it take you this long to get here? Um, the Springfield Police Department logged at 1040 p.m. Employee of McKenzie Wilmette Hospital advises of gunshot victims at that location. Officers dispatched arrived 1048 p.m.
1: Okay. So, so it's been
0: eight, eight minutes. Pretty good. Yeah, Diane was very upset when she saw the police. Though, right? Um, she she tells Charbonneau pretty much the same story that she told Judy. Although when she tells Charbonneau now the children are sleeping, uh, she remembered that they were sleeping. Okay, not, not talking of laughing. and laughing. Yes. Okay. She told him angrily, "I wasn't going to let him have my new car. I just bought it." After the retelling of the story, story Charbonneau realizes the wrong police department had responded. So there was some confusion about where exactly this had happened, and it was determined that it happened outside Springfield City limits, so they had to call the Lane County Sheriff's Office. So now they've got the Eugene Police Department there, they call the Sheriff's Office, Sergeant Robert Rutherford responded, and the two lawmen, to their credit, kind of worked together even because Charbonneau was already there. Okay. Um, and also imagine being... I'm, I'm still stuck on the new car comment.
1: Imagine being more concerned about your car than your three children inside of your car.
0: Yes. I wasn't going to let him have it. It's my new car. Yeah. Yeah. Not not the fact that your children are inside of it. Yeah. And we'll get back to the car some more later too. <laughs> with the children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, okay. Yeah. And she... Uh, in, her, in some of her stories, she says... She said, Are you kidding me? Because... Like, that only happens in movies. People come up and say, I want your car. Right. Are you kidding me? Is what she says. She said to the man. Mm -hmm. And the Academy Award goes to. (laughs) Okay, proceed. Okay. Um, So the two lawmen decide they need to warn people and find out exactly where on this road this event occurred. It's a kind of a back road, but there are houses on it. Um they don't know what the heck is happening. They just think there's a madman with a gun, so they want to warn as many people as possible, figure out if there's any issues um okay are they called lawmen? Lawmen no, law
1: in the book? No. Who the fuck calls police officers lawmen?
0: <laughs> me, I do. It's me. I'm um, the problem, it's me. Um I just called them lawmen cuz they're both members of the law and they were working together. I don't know. Neat. So like police <laughs> officers. <laughs> yeah. But they're not. One is a sergeant and one is a Oh, police officer yeah but when okay. i was also or like sergeant. Invest- and you know what's Investigators funny is, when I wrote, is another great synonym. when I wrote the two lawmen i was like i wonder if she's gonna ask me about the word lawman.
1: yeah because who calls them lawmen
0: <laughs> me you weirdo <laughs> i do
1: i was like maybe she took it from the book because like no. nobody fucking says that I, I, okay
0: i do so they both work together Charbonneau, oh, who, who the lawmen? <laughs> the lawmen, yes. Okay. Okay. So Charbonneau stayed back to guard the car just because it was kind of a crime scene. Mm-hmm. And Sergeant Rutherford. <laughs> like, it was kind of a crime scene. It, was kind yeah, of a crime it scene. definitely so, was a crime scene. Yeah. So Charbonneau was like, it's not actually my department any- anymore. I'm going to stay back and guard this car. And Sergeant Rutherford took Diane and her dad in his car to find where this happened. And as they were riding outside, not riding, heading outside to the parking lot, you could see Charbonneau standing guard over the car and Diane yells, I hope my car's okay. Are there bullet holes in it?
1: Jesus <laughs> fucking cry! Oh my God. I'm sorry to laugh. That's so <laughs> fucked
0: up. Are there bullet holes in it? And dude. Charbonneau was like, I don't know. No one's looked. Yet. No one's looked yet. Oh my God, dude.
1: I, first of all, I hate cases with kids. I don't think we've done a ton. I think like Watts was the other one that Laura did. I hate them so much, but are you fucking kidding me?
0: No. And this is why these details are important because she says so many random things that people are like, what? why would you, why would you say that right there? Like, why would you focus on those things? Okay. So Charbonneau says no one had looked it over yet. Um, so Diane directs them to old Mohawk road, and kind of confirmed different places along the way as her route to the hospital with the children after they had been shot. She points out the bridge where she remembers Christy stopped gurgling on her own blood. Oh, God. Um, that part of the story was was true. Um, and then while in the car, she made the comment, I never should have bought the unicorn. And Rutherford's like, what? What unicorn? What are you talking about? And so she tells him, I bought the kids a beautiful brass unicorn and I had their names engraved on it just a couple of days ago. It was, you know, it meant we had a new life. I shouldn't have bought it. And I guess in the card, she mentions quite a few times, like, I shouldn't have bought the unicorn. The cursed brass unicorn. Yeah, I guess. I shouldn't have bought the unicorn. This fucking bitch. (laughs) The unicorn will come back up later. So... Diane showed them where the incident happened. It was kind of a narrower, like lonely, dark spot of this road. There's a river running on one side and then there's a field on the other. We can put the picture of the crime scene on the Insta. They had already set up roadblocks and the Springfield Police Department and the Lane County Sheriff's Office were already canvassing the road. talking, Warning residents that are on that road, kind of searching around, searching in the fields nearby. They already had a tracking dog out there. Okay, for this maniac, looking for this maniac with a gun. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, another detective was called to take Diane and her father back to the hospital so that Rutherford could stay behind to help with the investigation. Okay. So at eleven fifteen p.m., Lane County detectives Dick Tracy, Doug Welch, and Roy Pond were called and told to report to the hospital. They would collect any evidence that might need to be handed over to the D- DA's office later. These are three new lawmen. <laughs> Three detectives. Okay. They're not technically lawmen. These are the investigators. But
1: aren't they also men of the law?
0: I don't know. Are they? (laughs) I think that they are. Okay. So, yes, these are the three new lawmen detectives. Okay, the detectives. Sorry, gotcha. Um, And I got really confused by the name Dick Tracy, and I was like, he's real? That's a real thing? But I guess coincidentally his name was Dick Tracy, and he became a detective because the whole Dick Tracy comic book thing was like in the 1930s. This is now the 19.
1: If you can tell, if you personally can tell from the look on my face, I have no idea what you're talking about. Dick Tracy, like the famous detective? Yeah. I obviously don't know anything Uh, about that based. Okay.
0: Okay. Okay. I I knew the name and then got very confused and actually had to like go down this rabbit hole and figure out if this was the Dick Tracy that I knew, but it's, it's not, it's just a weird coincidence that.
1: I saw your face when you mentioned Dick Tracy and it meant nothing to me.
0: (laughs) And, and I was wondering if you were going to be like, wait a minute, Dick Tracy. No, no. not at all. Not all at right. All. So for you gremlins out there that know what I'm talking about, <laughs> you've now had a little lesson into the name Dick Tracy. And it's not him. <laughs> it's it's not a different him. one. It's a very weird coincidence that he's a detective named Dick Tracy. Mm hmm. Um, so Welch and Pond got there first and started bagging evidence and taking pictures. They bagged all the clothing and the towel that had been collected, um, including a bullet casing that fell out of one of the children's shirts. Oh. Um, they kind of packed that up and then they also took pictures of the deceased child's body. They kind of oh, had to stay out of the way of the doctors who were still feverishly working on these children at this point, because it's only probably about 1130 and, um, Chrissy didn't go into surgery till 1145. So. Okay. Um, Tracy was directed to go collect Diane and her dad, and then to assist Welch in questioning her. So when Diane arrived back at the hospital, Dr. Mackey finally told her that Cheryl Lynn had died, that Christie was in surgery, and that they were cautiously optimistic about Danny. When the doctor described the path the bullet took in Danny's body, Diane asked, You mean it missed his heart? And the doctor says, Yes. Um, to the det- <laughs> I like your face right now. <laughs> I, yeah. wh- what the fuck kind of question is that? You mean it missed his heart? And the doctor was like, yes. I feel like if it hit his heart, he would have very much succinctly died. stated that as well. Yeah. Yeah. You mean it missed his heart? Um, and so to the detectives, Diane's demeanor seemed flat and brittle and very with very little emotion. She seemed kind of like dazed and confused. Right, especially on which daughter had died. She kept getting confused. She kept what? being like, "Wait, no, Christy died," and they'd be like, "No, Cheryl died," and she'd be like, "Not my Sherry. It was Christy, right?" And they were like, "No, it was Cheryl." So, uh, to the point where ultimately her father had to identify Cheryl's body for her oh um, and say that yes, this is Cheryl, not Christy. Um, and when the directed the detectives questioned her, Diane's responses were. Rapid in a breathy teenage like voice, and her sentences were complete run ons. The detectives were like scribbling frantically, it took them like two hours to interview her and they just they called it verbal vomit she just was spewing out words and they were trying to like frantically record what she was saying okay
1: so she's like the more bullshit i spew the better it's gonna sound
0: yeah and i mean some of them seem to think they kind of feel more like maybe she's trying to protect herself like them if i keep speaking nothing will really sink in it won't really be real Mm. you know so to their credit they are giving her the, the benefit Nancy of the doubt and the benefit of the doubt yeah um they assume she's just in shock and trying to maintain her herself because she's not really showing any very much emotion so
1: I would have been like fuck you bitch after she asked about her car <laughs> after her three children are in the hospital for gunshot wounds I'd be like, ma'am, nobody cares about your Ford Focus, okay? We care about your children.
0: So now the detectives ask her what happened. And so this is the story that she tells the detectives. And I am going to say it again because this has a lot more detail in it than than the first little blurb. So she tells them that they had gone to see a friend of hers, Heather Plord, that evening who lived northeast of Springfield. She told the detectives she knew Heather wanted a horse and that she had found an article about horses that could be adopted for free. Heather had no phone, so Diane had gone out to give her the article clipping. After visiting for about 15 to 20 minutes, they headed home. She said she had impulsively detoured to do a little sightseeing, but when she realized the children were asleep, she turned around and headed back towards Springfield. She had no specific plan and said she turned off Marcola Road to Old Mohawk Road and only gone a short distance when she saw a man standing in the middle of the road waving his hands. She feared an accident and pulled over to help. She described the man to the detectives as white, in his late 20s, about five feet nine, 150 to 170. He had dark hair, a shaggy, wavy cut, and a stubble of a beard, maybe one or two days' growth. Levi's, a Levi jacket, a dirty, maybe off color light t shirt. She tells the detectives that I stopped my car and I got out and I said, What's the problem? He jogged over to me and said, I want your car. And I said, You've got to be kidding. And then he shoved me to the back of the car. She then tells detectives that he reached into the car and starts firing a gun at her children. First Christy, then Danny, and finally Cheryl in the front seat. She told detectives I pretended to throw my car keys. That made him angry. I wanted him to think I'd thrown the keys into the brush. He was about four or five feet away from me. He turned in my direction, firing twice, hitting me once. I pushed him or kicked him, maybe both, in the leg. I jumped into the car and took off to the hospital as fast as I could. The detectives asked her if she had seen the gun or if she owned any guns. She said she had seen it, but she couldn't describe it, and that she owned a twenty-two rifle that was on the shelf in her closet at home and that they could go get it if they wanted to. She was very cooperative and voluntarily signed consent for them to search her house. No search warrant was needed. Hmm. So she pretty much was like, yeah, go to the house, go get the rifle. You know, I give you consent to look at whatever you need to figure out who this person is and how they got my kids.
1: I'll give her credit on the description of the man, because I would be like, it was a man, he had a face, and he was wearing clothes, and that's all I've got for you.
0: Yeah, we'll get back to the description of the man later. Okay. Okay.
1: Yeah. Or like, what was it? What was the case where it was like, uh, they released a sketch of like a like, blank egg? <laughs> yes, it was it like, was like egg Yes. With a face, yeah. Yeah.
0: Um. So they didn't have to worry about a search warrant. She signed over that they could go you know, take whatever they needed from. Um, But the story of a lone random stranger in the middle of the road who shoots children didn't make sense to the detectives. Nope. They started to wonder if she knew the shooter and was being coerced and threatened. Mm. Um, Maybe, you know, maybe the shooter had told her, you can take the kids to the hospital, but if you say anything to the cops, I'll... I'll get you or so they were concerned that this gunman might actually she might know him and he might be waiting for her at the condo or maybe he's back at Heather's house they they thought that maybe there was something more to this because the story itself didn't make sense really make a whole lot of sense um so they wanted to get police out to this condo into Heather's house to make sure that there were like no hostages or anything Mm -hmm. so Tracy asked Diane's father if she owned any guns and he told him Um, that she had a rifle and a small revolver and that she owned those because her husband used to beat on her. So when Tracy asked Diane if she owned any other guns, she remembered that she owned an old 38 pistol, a Saturday night special, but it was cheap and unreliable and she kept it locked in the trunk of the car away from the children. So she miraculously remembered that second gun after being asked a second time. Did you say Tracy? Yeah, the... the Dick Tracy the (laughs) investigator. (laughs) Okay, so
1: Diane remembered
0: the second gun. So Tracy asks her father, does she own any guns? And the father's like, Yeah, she owns two. Okay. So then he turns back to Diane and is like, hey do you own any other guns? Because she only said she owned one. Okay. My brain just broke. I was like, I (laughs) was
1: like, Tracy had another gun. Who's Tracy? Oh, but we're talking about Diane. (laughs) No. So Diane has another gun that she keeps
0: keeps in her trunk away from the children. And it was a 38 Saturday night special. It was a 38 Saturday night special, but they were shot with a 22. They were shot with a 22.
1: Yes. Okay. Did they happen to find the 22 rifle in her house? We're going to get to that. Okay.
0: Okay. We haven't gotten to the house yet. Give me the toxicology reports. <laughs> we, haven't <gotten laughs> to the, we haven't gotten to the house yet. Her toxicology reports were clean, by the way. They did okay. check to make sure she wasn't under the influence and hadn't been drinking and she hadn't. Okay. So. Boring. Yeah, totally boring. Um, so after talking to Diane for about two hours, the detectives finally went to help search the townhouse. It's like now 3 a.m. Okay. Um, so Diane finally gets looked at by the orthopedic surgeon, uh, Dr. Terrence carter And he treated Diane's wounds. Her left arm was broken and there were, but there was no nerve or tendon damage. So pretty much the bullet went in kind of shattered and came out in two different spots. So she had these three like wounds, one bigger, two little smaller ones, but her arm was broken. So um, she would need surgery in a week or so to strengthen the arm. Diane wanted to go home, but Carter wouldn't let her and told her she had to stay in the hospital for at least a couple days. So this is definitely 1980 something (laughs) (laughs) and not 2000 when they would have been like, yeah no you can't stay here that's no that's not life-threatening
1: they're like ma'am your arm is missing but it's fine we go put a home. band-aid on it the insurance it won't off. cover it yeah walk it <laughs> yeah, off
0: the insurance won't cover it but they wouldn't let her go home with a broken arm yeah that's I not mean, a part thing. part of it in might have been the trauma of the whole event and the fact that her kids were there and i don't know but she didn't Maybe. go home for days so yeah
1: no um. they don't do that for a broken <laughs> arm. now it's like you pop out a baby and they're like you the talk's, <laughs> the tox clicking the clock is ticking yeah, yeah get, like, get out, out. yeah pretty much yeah. they're like oh you're
0: dying of cancer you're fine go home yeah walk it off yeah um so she was there for at least a couple days she made him promise not to tell her father about the tattoo on her back though um she had priorities she she had a huge rose etched in scarlet on her left shoulder and underneath the rose was the name lou (laughs) (laughs) okay but she didn't want her father to know about that so she made the doctor promise not to tell him Ooh, spicy Lou. (laughs) We'll get back to Lou later. I can't wait. I can't wait. I'm waiting with (laughs) bated breath to hear about Lou. So two detectives go out to Heather's trailer and question the young couple who were just so confused. It's the middle of the night. And they asked, you know, did Diane come here? So she confirms Diane showed up maybe 8.30 or 9 to give her the article. Um, but they had already just bought a horse. And oh, they, she
1: she did give her the horse clipping. I thought they'd be like,
0: de fuck? No. No, no she did bring her the horse clipping. And Heather was like, we just bought a horse, though, so we can't really have two horses. So but They're like, here's your horse coupon. <laughs> we're going to leave now. <laughs> so they let the kids play with the new horse for a couple of minutes while the adults talked. And then Diane left. She told the detective she was surprised because Diane had only been there once before, about like three weeks before. So she was surprised she even knew how to get back there. Um, and she said that they left, not really in a hurry, but she had a feeling that like Diane had somewhere else to be mm-hmm. when they left. So the detectives confirmed that the Plords had no firearms and that their two young children were safely asleep in their beds. Didn't tell them really anything that had happened, but they were like, can we see your children? And the Plourds were like, I guess, sure. So they checked the sleeping children just to make sure there's no like gunman holding people hostage. They checked the sleeping children. They said, thanks so much. And they left. They realized whatever had happened to the Downses had happened after right. they had left the Ploids. There was nothing to do with the Ploids. So they kind okay. of ruled them out and then they all went to Diane's condo. So now they're all okay. at Diane's condo, like in the middle of the night. Okay. Um, so Diane had actually only come to the Eugene Springfield area about three eight weeks prior. Um, so about two months, she had lived all her life in Arizona, but had moved to Oregon for a fresh start and to be closer to her parents. So she had worked a couple of years in Arizona as a letter carrier and then had taken a job in Oregon as a letter carrier as well. Remember her father is the postmaster in Eugene. So that was a pretty easy gig to okay. get. So when you say letter carrier, she's a male, mailman person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They call okay. them letter carriers. I don't know if it's the time. Do they or do you? (laughs) They do do call them letter carriers. I don't know. I'm not not sure how much
1: I rely on how much I rely on your verbiage, (laughs) verbiage, verbiage,
0: verbiage, verbiage, words, words, your words, the words, yeah. Uh, so the detectives found the condo a little odd there were unpacked boxes everywhere and like very little furniture mm-hmm. it looked almost like you know someone had just moved in two days before but hadn't unpacked the boxes they were resting up getting ready to kind of unpack right not like eight weeks before there were no couches there was no dinette set there was just a tv and a stand and like a wooden chair in the downstairs dinette set <laughs> <laughs> are yes. you 80 listen this you're happens- worse than Laura <laughs> <laughs> Laura's
1: like, let me give you the history of electricity. You're like, there was no dinette set?
0: This happened in the 80s, and that was from the book. They said there was no (laughs) dinette set, so I just wrote it down. The lawmen concluded
1: (laughs) that the letter carrier had no dinette set. (laughs)
0: Listen, the... (laughs) The wow. lawn was mine. The rest of it is not mine. I don't know what to tell you. Okay. So no dinette set. Got it. <laughs> no dinette set. Okay. So there's nowhere for them to eat food, not that there was really any food in the in the house anyway. The fridge was pretty much empty, except for like a couple scummy cans of food that had been opened already. Um, okay. And then uh, there were four small frames on top of the TV. Two were pictures of Diane and two two were of a man. Lou. <laughs> Lou. Is it Lou? They assumed it was Lou. <laughs> <laughs> they did they did in fact assume it was Lou. But the two pictures of Diane, one was like a headshot and one was like a full body shot. There were no pictures of the children anywhere.
1: Okay, well, I'm not gonna judge people because I've got glamour <laughs> shots of me on the wall right next to me. I'm totally kidding. That's so no, weird. Le- like, Do you really My sister just looked at my wall <laughs> like I actually have headshots of myself in my dinette room
0: (laughs) she does not in fact which i was very confused i was like wait what wall no (laughs) no no headshots. that's weird yeah so there's no pictures of the children at all there's no food in the fridge there's not even enough food in the house to make a meal all the kitchenware was just still packed in boxes there's just boxes everywhere they thought it was a little weird so upstairs they go into her bedroom into the closet and the the rifle is exactly where she said it would be oh yep Tracy took out nine live mismatched 22 rounds. Some were stamped with the letter C on the bottom and were, some were stamped with the letter U some were whitewashed. This will be a little more significant later on, but I just wanted to mention it now.
1: Okay. And when you said nine live and then you went on in, in my head, you were like, they pulled out nine lives. And I was like, did she have a cat too? <laughs> like I literally was like, Oh, like nine lives. She actually cat did have a kitten. <laughs> Was this one of those things where like it wasn't written down in your notes, but now you know it like, like Laura and I do. (laughs)
0: Um, So, so yes, I did actually forget to put the kitten in my notes, but they probably wasn't that important. (laughs) No, they did get a kitten that day from the the neighbors at their grandmother's house. And they brought this kitten home is one of the reasons they went home for dinner. They brought this kitten home. And then later... When they were doing the investigation, everyone was like, Where's the kitten? Like, where is this kitten? I just cannot with this bitch's day. She's like, Okay, so we got a cat,
1: we got dinner, we brought some horse coupons, got some horse pets, and then we were carjacked. It was wild. Yeah, exactly. That's this bitch's story. Yep. Mm-hmm. Unacceptable. Yep,
0: that is her that is her story. Unacceptable. Okay, so nine nine, nine live rounds. 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 They were mismatched. Okay. Yep, there were a couple different kinds. Okay. Um, She asked the detectives to find her diary and bring it back to her at the hospital. It was just a plain spiral notebook. Um, And so they made a copy of it for evidence before they brought it back to her at the hospital. It was written in the form of letters that were never sent. And all of them except for one were addressed to (laughs) Lou. Lou. Yeah, Makes sense for a letter carrier. Yeah, they were all addressed to Lou. But that was her diary. Yeah, Do we meet Lou? eventually okay yeah so the next morning diane waited until 7 a.m her time which is 8 a.m arizona time to call the chandler post office and she talked to karen batten who had she had been friends with when she lived in chandler because she worked at that post office diane had been calling right about 8 a.m every day for weeks but lou refused her call all her calls he had told everyone at the post office he did not want to speak to her and he had sent all her letters and packages back with return to sender notices on them as well yeah Karen insisted he needed to talk to Diane this morning, though, after Diane told her what had happened. So Karen starts crying. She tells Lou, oh, you need to talk to her. So Lou gets on the phone and Diane starts asking him uh, how he was and if he was happy and how his life was going. And Lou is like, what the hell is going on? Mm -hmm. And she's like, nothing. And he's like, why is Karen crying? And so then she tells him that she and the kids had been shot. She's
1: like, what had happened
0: was... <laughs> and he's like, I don't even know what to say right now. Like, I just don't... So he's trying not to talk to her, but at the same time, he's like, I don't even know what to say about okay, the Okay, but fact what's that... the deal with
1: Diane and Lou? Are you going to tell oh, us about that? Oh, yeah. Okay, a, you're going to get into yeah. Okay. Oh, that's, that's
0: actually going to be in part two. There's too much stuff to go on before okay. that, yeah. But, All right. Uh, Lou's a big a big part of this whole thing. Okay. Yeah. Um. So... She tells them they've been shot and he took down her room number and phone number and then told her not to visit him if she comes to Chandler and hung up. <laughs>
1: oh, okay. He's like, miss me. Bye.
0: <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, so before we go any further, I do want to introduce a man key to this whole case, the assistant district attorney that would be the prosecutor, Fred Hughey. Okay. So he was born in the Bronx as a third generation American of Swiss meat cutters. Okay. Uh, he earned his first degree from Rutgers University in forestry. His what degree?
1: First oh, degree. You were like, first to the degree.
0: <laughs> his first degree okay. uh, from Rutgers University in forestry. And then on June 1st, 1966, he enlisted in the military. He married his wife, Joanne, on June 4th, and then he went off to basic training. Okay. He left for Vietnam in May 1967 for a year so he's a Vietnam vet. Upon his return, he qualified for his private pilot license, and he worked for a timber company in Washington State. Using he, that forestry to degree. Forestry, yep. He loved being out outdoors and with the trees, but he kind of saw the job as a dead end. He, there was no really way to move up in that one. And he realized that the financers, not the timber companies, made all the decisions. So he went back to school at the University of Oregon on the GI Bill, eventually earning his master's in business and a law degree. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So his interest in law revolved around defending the innocent, and he worked for years in private practice as a defense attorney. He would often eat lunch with the assistant DAs from the courthouse, and he later said that once I realized how the system worked, I saw that the glamorous law school notion of defending the innocent could best be accomplished from the state's side of the case. Defendants were not wrongfully accused. It was the innocent victims of crime that needed the protection." ah uh, uh-huh. so in november 1975 Hughie joined the lane county's da's office he was the quiet loner type he kind of hated publicity he really hated the press um which are not usual characteristics for prosecutors usually they kind of have big personalities and love to yeah. kind of play up on the press um i'm still
1: stuck on the fact like how wild is the practice of law it's like oh what is your bachelor's degree in forestry I did lumber work before becoming a DA. Yep.
0: Yep. He he did. Yep. And like they said that this is the opposite of the normal path. Normal path is they start in the DA's office and then they go to private practice. Because there's more money in private practice. Instead of from private practice to the DA's office. Yeah. So Um, he wanted
1: to protect the victims. I thought it was going to be more like he, he saw that you could protect people from being wrongfully convicted from the prosecutor side by like not charging them. Or from pleading it out. But instead he's like, fuck them. Everybody's guilty.
0: I want to fight for the poor victims of these crimes by prosecuting their person. Yeah. Okay. Um, So those are not usual characteristics of the prosecutors. But he had moved into the DA's office because he had ideals of the system. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to be the type of prosecutor someone would want on his case. Um, He wanted to be someone who would make the system work and do whatever it takes to see that it does. Mm. Hughie was known as a workaholic probably not a surprise often no. staying at work until midnight if he felt it was necessary um his wife joanne was also fully vested in her career she was the co director of the computer center at the university of oregon okay which remember this is the 1980s so computers are like big hunkin' things and takes up a whole room whole rooms yeah, yeah. um so the center for the computer at the University of Oregon. So they had no children. Um, both of them were completely dedicated their to their career. And they kind of talked about children off and on through their marriage. But they really weighed the time and attention children would need very seriously and didn't think it fair to bring children into the world and then not give them the love and attention they needed when they were fully vested in their career. So I admire that. Yeah, so they just didn't, they decided not to have children. Um, They lived in a lodge-like house set back in the forest near the Mackenzie River. Um, They had spent many years in the city, so he didn't really mind the half-hour commute to Eugene. On the morning of May 20th, he was a member of DA Pat Horton's staff. Horton assigned homicides on a rotating basis, so Hughie was actually slated for the first homicide in May, and May 1st, there was a homicide, but he wasn't interested in it, and one of the other guys was, so he swept. So this was definitely his case, because okay. now it's May 19th, so All right. this was going to be his case. So after being assigned the case, Hughie and one of the DA investigators, Paul Alton, arrived at the hospital around 10 a.m., so this is the next morning. Okay. They found Christy and Danny in the ICU. Both children were hooked up to many monitoring devices. Christy was awake and watching them over her tubes and oxygen mask. She locked eyes with Hughie, and the normally very level-headed, unemotional man had tears sliding down his face. Oh, God. Alton would later say, in quotes, that in that moment, Fred adopted Christy. Nobody was going to hurt her anymore, not unless they Aww. went through Fred first. Aww. So Hughie sat with the children on and off in the ICU on that Friday, and honestly, any spare minute that he could when he wasn't running around trying to do other things, um, he he sat with them quite often oh um alton was actually there when diane first visited the children on that friday um according to alton she went up to christy's bed and held her hand giving it a hard squeeze and then she looked her straight in the eyes and kept saying i love you christy i love you christy and christy's heart rate skyrocketed on the monitor and it took forever for it to come back down after diane left and Alton said that the look in Chrissy's eyes was very strange. Red like, flags. Almost fearful. <laughs> yeah, red flags. Um, she did visit the children often over the next several days, but she would often stand awkwardly at the foot of their bed, not really knowing what to say. Her movement's kind of self-conscious, like someone that had never really been around small children before. She's like, what do I normally do with my hands? <laughs> yeah. Um, Hughie was actually often there uh, for these interactions, but Diane didn't pay him any mind. She assumed he was a plainclothes officer. To protect the children, um, there was a plainclothes officer there that was not allowed to leave Christie alone. No one was allowed to be alone with her except for medical staff. So, oh, that's good. And that was from Hughie and the sheriff. County's like deemed necessary. Super smart. Super smart. So no one was allowed to be alone with her. Um, but she would just kind of stand at the bottom of their bed and like shuffle foot to foot for a couple minutes, and then walk out. And a lot of times she wouldn't even say anything to them
1: that's I, i'm like i didn't have a comment initially because i'm just like i can feel how awkward that awkward. is yeah super to just awkward. do like a little like a little jazz like, dance and then be I'm like i'm supposed to be here but i don't really know what okay, i'm going okay bye yeah
0: yep so their father stephen downs um arrived the friday afternoon from arizona so he still lived in arizona he was questioned by detectives about. When he had spoken to Diane last, what they had talked about, how the relationship was after the divorce. You know, like normal questions you would ask if you're trying to kind of piece things together. Right. So during these questions, they ask Steve if uh, Diane owns any guns. And he says, yes, she owns three guns. Oh, now she has
1: three. Now she has three. Yes. Shit, it keeps escalating. Yeah. So
0: the detectives noticed that she had left out the twenty-two Ruger 9, nine-shot semi-automatic pistol. Oh. <sighs> Lies. It's a Ruger Mark 4. It's a, it's, it's not a nine. You're obviously
1: not a gun person.
0: <laughs> I'm also reading uh, Roman numerals, and my brain said 9, <laughs> but it's a 4. <laughs> I did actually research calibers of bullets because I okay. didn't know what the difference yeah, between like a 22 small. and a 38 was. 22 or, yeah. goes pew, pew. <laughs> yeah. 22s are for, like, my husband explained it, like varmin. Like, you shoot varmin. Or mm. for self-defense where you're not trying to kill the person. Like... Mm-hmm. You know, they're just little birds they hurt but they're not necessarily gonna like murder you i would say unless B- you sh- I would say, shoot them in I would the right place
1: bb guns like <laughs> bb pellets hurt 22s will kill oh, you yes.
0: yeah i mean if you shoot them in the right place mm-hmm. yeah um but the semi-automatic pistol when they questioned her the night before no one seemed to remember that except for steve downs uh-huh Right. Yeah. Um, so the investigators and detectives, including Hughie, were not buying Diane's story from the start. Weird, right? Yeah. Um, so in the DA's office, they actually already had a phrase, the BHS or the bushy haired stranger, <coughs> because this BHS or bushy haired stranger, he got blamed for all the crimes all the time. You know, anytime they would be called, oh, there was this bushy haired stranger that was here and he stole the things and he shot the things. So they already had this term, the BHS. Okay. Um, there were many cases where someone would blame the BHS who was never, ever caught and was never brought to court. Right. And Hughie actually joked in the past that if the BHS was ever caught, most of the doors in the jail would need to be opened to free all the wrongly accused. <laughs> So when Diane claims a BHS, she called him a shaggy-haired stranger, but it's pretty much the same thing, okay. had shot her children, immediate red flags went up for the investigators. Right. Because that is a typical like BS. Bullshit. There was some BHS and he did these things. Like, yeah. So they immediately, as soon as she starts calling this guy a shaggy-haired stranger, were like, mm, that's weird. Uh-huh. Um, so the term that the police used for Diane's story, especially the man, they used the word hanky. So hinky, hinky. yeah. It's a term that apparently police departments—I don't know if it's just this one specifically—but they use it to discriminate, describe something (laughs) that just doesn't seem true. It's like a little off-center. It's a little suspicious. I feel like that word is in Austin Powers. I don't know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You just shut down. You're like, oh, this is reject your reference. (laughs) I'm
0: not that person <laughs> you're 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 all
1: up on the dick tracy references but the austin Powers, nope, fuck that got
0: nothing <laughs> i have no idea okay um so they tried to go through a ton of different scenarios that would make more sense than this story um but there were just so many spots of the story that didn't make sense why hadn't the shooter shot the adult first that could hinder him right why would you shoot children after she said you've got to be kidding me how would he know to be on the road to stop Diane's car? If she turned there randomly with no pre-planned to be there, how would he even know she was going to be there?
1: Well, I mean, like, these those questions are kind of bullshit because, like, it would just be a coincidence.
0: I guess, but, but then the theory was coming up, maybe he was following her, but then how okay. would he end up in the road in front of her if he had been following her? Mm-hmm. No matter what theory they came up with, they always had to kind of mold it and shape it to fit her story. So it just didn't make sense. Hanky. <laughs> they just kept saying it was hinky. Super hinky. Um, and then there were the minor discrepancies in her story. Sometimes the man was in the middle of the road. Sometimes he jogged up to her car. Sometimes the kids were asleep. Sometimes they were laughing and talking. Sometimes he leaned into the car and shot the kids. Other times he just put his arm into the car and just shot wildly. Mm-hmm. Um. And then there was the gunshot on her arm, which we kind of brought up a little bit. But before the reports of this event even came out on the morning that they assigned this to Hughie, one of the guys in the DA's office was just joking around and said, I know where the mom got shot, right here, right here on the arm, and points to exactly where she got shot and said, right there, where it won't kill you, and it won't even hurt that much. And this is huh. before the report even came out. So they were kind of joking, like, ha-ha, I know where the mom got shot, like, betcha... Okay, I'll give it to her
1: because I too, I mean, I'm like, okay, she shot herself, but it wasn't superficial. She shot her ball. It bone. wasn't. That, yeah, I'll, yeah.
0: I'll give it to her. Um, and this comment kind of came back to Hughie during those first couple days. And so when he talked to Dr. Carter about Diane's injury, he asked the doctor outright if the doctor was to shoot himself to make it look like he'd been attacked, where would he shoot himself? And the doctor said, right there. Oh, I feel like I would do it in like the meaty
1: fat part of my thigh. But when you're doing the thigh, you've got the femoral artery. If you hit that, you're dead. Yeah, but that's like on the inside. I'm talking like the outside near my ham. What if it goes through? I don't know. Through what? My butt cheek? Like (laughs) I want the ham hock. Like the part that Mike wants to roast on Colby. Like I want that part. The real meaty part, not my bones on my arm.
0: (laughs) Yeah. That's interesting that they would
1: all shoot themselves there. That is not where I would pick.
0: Yeah, it's just, it was a little... Would you pick your arm? You wouldn't shoot yourself in your arm all. Well, no. I I avoid pain at all costs, so I wouldn't even consider shooting myself. Um, (laughs) No,
1: but like if gun to your head if you had to shoot yourself wayward you wouldn't pick your arm bone ow i don't i don't know you'd go for the ham hock i'm telling you (laughs) it's gotta be the best case scenario
0: i probably would go for the foot because there's nothing critical in the foot oh but the bones are in there yeah i think they'd all hurt quite (laughs) honestly yeah i mean let's just not shoot ourselves and deal go with that yeah um so Hyugi and Welsh, one of the other detectives, very quickly thought it could be Diane. Um, the problem they couldn't figure out would be motive. Like, why? Right. Why would right. a mother shoot her own children? Yeah. Uh, there was no life insurance. Look at that. There's no okay. monetary gain. It's kind of hard to shoot. It's kind of hard to picture a mother shooting her own children.
1: Well, that's why the case isn't solved yet.
0: There's no insurance. <laughs>
1: <laughs> if there was life insurance... It would have been solved already. It would have been solved mm-hmm.
0: within the first 12 hours. I-, I will tell you it is solved, but it's not an I know case it's solved, yet. yes. Yeah. Um, so no matter what they thought of Diane and how she acted though, they could only build a case in their heads because there was no gun. So there's really no case without a gun. Okay. So both departments searched and Alton and Hughie personally searched every mile of that road. They walked uh-huh. up and down that road together. They searched the road, the fields, the river. Um, they put divers in the river in the end, they put in 1,149 man hours. Damn. And those were the ones clocked by the department. I'm pretty sure Hughie and Alton probably didn't clock their hours Damn. because they were just doing it on their own time. Um, but they never found a gun. Wow. And they went over the river
1: and through the woods. <laughs> they did. Yep. And oh. they didn't find and, it.
0: And Nope. The fields. Damn. and Yeah. Without the gun, they had two witnesses, one being Diane and the other, Christy, who could no longer talk. So she had suffered a major stroke in her brain the day after surgery, Aww. most likely a complication from bleeding out and having her oh, blood transfused. Okay. Um, so her stroke had affected the left side of her brain where the speech cortex is. In adults, this is permanent. Um, but in children under 10, there is a chance they can actually, with lots of therapy, reprogram their brains to have the speech center be on the right side. Dude, brains are wild. Right um but it's a very long process obviously mm-hmm. and there's still no guarantee that it will work okay um, so her right hand was also paralyzed from the stroke she was left-handed but she couldn't write because she had a bulky bandage from the bullet hole near her um thumb oh. and we'll get to the theory about that hole later okay um so if she could or would communicate anything about what had happened it was going to be a very long time so they really were like we don't really have witnesses we don't have a gun Mm -hmm. So the two police departments met every morning to discuss what was being found or not found, theories, evidence. They kind of had a departmental meeting. Um, There was super pressure to make an arrest early. Right. They had a blackboard with headings, reasons Diane did it and reasons (laughs) Diane didn't do it. (laughs) Okay, Um, (laughs) I
1: love that journey for them, though. They're like, all right, let's go back to the board here. Why is she a fucking psychopath?
0: So under the didn't do it column were always present these two main reasons that they had to overcome. Mothers don't hurt their children. And if she had anything to do with it, why would she drive them to the hospital? So Mm. those were the two really big things that they were like, I don't know, did she not do it? Um, so the idea that Diane was a suspect suspect was kept close to the vest, um, inside the department. As far as the media knew, she was a grieving mother victim of an unimaginable crime, right? Hughie knew that if they arrested Diane without any real evidence, she would walk. So uh-huh. in Oregon, they had a 60 day maximum between arrest and trial, uh, with a chance of 90 days on a murder trial. So once she was arrested, they had a, uh, a clock that they had Good to get to. Lord. Mm-hmm.
1: That's quite the timeline.
0: Yep. So Hughie didn't want to act too quickly. Right. uh, Despite the pressure from the departments and his colleagues, they were all getting real pissed because he just kept going, nope, we're not there yet. Nope, we're not there yet. Yeah. Well, that's crazy. Um, so Diane was released from the hospital on Monday, May 23rd. So she went in Thursday night and was released on Monday. Um, Danny had already been transported to the other local hospital, Sacred Heart, to await further surgery. Um, he was now paralyzed from the chest down. Aww. And they hoped that they could, through surgery, alleviate some of the pressure on his spinal cord so that it wouldn't be permanent. Right. Um, Diane saw Christy one last time, and on her way out of the hospital, she passed Hughie, And for the first and only time, she talked to him. Looking at him with her infamous half-mocking smile, she said, I am getting stronger and stronger and stronger, and I'm going to beat this.
1: Diane said that? mm
0: mm-hmm, To, to Heuge. Heuge. Yep. She knew she was a suspect based on kind of the way their demeanor changed from when she was admitted to when she left. Um, she claimed she had heard them talking about her in the halls, and she could kind mm-hmm. of tell that they were no longer like you poor thing and yeah. were kind of looking at her. But Hughie said, quote, the look on her face was unmistakable. It said, I did it. You know, I did it. I know, you know, I did it, but you can't prove it. Huh? That was a quote by Hugie.
1: You, I know that, you know, that I know that, you know, <laughs> that, that I did we it. know that I, I did it. it. Yeah.
0: But you can't prove it. Yeah. So I think this is a good place to tell you a little bit about Diane and kind of how we got where we are and how mm-hmm. she was raised. So this whole incident caused her to move back in with her parents, which was something that she had tried to escape her whole life. Okay. Um, so here we go. Buckle up. This is D- Diane's grown up. So the media and the world know her as Diane Downs, but she was born Elizabeth Diane Fredrickson on August 7th, 1955 in Phoenix, Arizona to Wesley and Willa Dean Fredrickson. When Diane was born, Willa Dean was 17 and Wes was 24. Oh, wow. Yep. So Diane was the oldest of five children. Uh, her parents were members of a strong, fundamentalist Southern Baptist church. Always good. Okay. Where a wife meekly follows behind her husband. And as a bride, Willadine believes she should defer to her husband and always would. Okay. Sex was something you did with the lights out and never talked about. <laughs> okay. Yep. So Diane remembers herself as a skinny, wistful little girl, ignored by her mother, tormented by her father, always walking alone from school without friends. Um, Diane probably got as much attention as a young mother of five children could, could give her, but to Diane, it wasn't enough. Uh-huh. Diane said her mother that she cooked for her dad, she cleaned for her dad, and she spent time with her dad, but not with her. Mm-hmm. Um, to Diane, Willa Dean's first concern was being a wife, then a mother. Wes made the rules of the house and dished out punishments, and Willa Dean always went with whatever he said. The family moved around a lot during Diane's childhood, but all within the Phoenix, Arizona area. On the outside, the Fredericksons looked like the perfect 1950s, 1960s family. A mother, father, five children. They went to church twice on Sunday and once on Wednesdays. Twice on Sunday? Twice on Sundays. They were a strict Baptist Uh, family. Yep. Wow, that's a lot of church. (laughs) Yep, and once on Wednesdays too, yeah. It's a lot of church. But Diane craved more interaction from her family. She wanted more closeness with her mother. Um, Diane was smart and excelled at school. Even as an adult under pressure, she scored an IQ of 125, which is just short of, like, genius-level IQ. Uh Um, She could have gone to any university and tackled any curriculum if she had chosen. Um, But the kids at school didn't like her much. So she was always picked last, was never part of whatever the other children were doing. Her teachers loved her, though. Um, Her father was strict with homework, and if Diane didn't have any, he would make her read the dictionary. (laughs) (laughs) okay but unfortunately brains don't really make you popular and so by 18 years old she had only ever been invited to two social functions outside of church functions oh yeah that's kind of sad so stories of kids being left out like this are so common from this time frame which is probably why now if i invite someone from my kids class i have to invite every single one of them
1: yeah i can't
0: no literally that's the school rule yeah (laughs) the school will not (laughs) allow me if we invite one boy we have to invite all the boys if we invite one girl we have to invite all the girls Okay but what if what if your friends with the parents then I could invite them outside but if I'm going okay. to pass the invitations out in class okay all right yeah i it, we have to invite every single one i was one of like them. that's
1: kind of crazy because i'd be like you're my friend but i'm not inviting your kids because i'm not inviting every kid in the class so sorry
0: yeah no it's it gets real expensive when you have to invite the entire class because your kid's friend with a girl and a boy
1: okay but it's also yeah it's good <laughs> but it's also to good because like leave kids out like this one
0: kid always got left out that really that I'm really sure fucks there were you up. quite a few elementary in the 1990s where i got left out from some party <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was that kid too. Um so but you
1: weren't reading the dictionary. <laughs> I was not
0: reading the dictionary. No, I was awkward and dumb. I don't
1: know. <laughs> I wouldn't say you were dumb. No, you were dumb. awkward and,
0: and not that bright. weird. Yeah. but <laughs> you weren't <laughs>
1: i'm like i'm trying to say that you have like diverse interests like you like like star wars and you were like i was so dumb i'm not even saying you were dumb you were you
0: were smart you were just i was I just just, like reading the dictionary smart. you just knew about like
1: dick tracy and stuff and correct. other kids didn't so they left you out
0: correct that is that is correct i got left out a lot yep. um so diane became a teenager in the late 60s uh which made things harder and worse for her socially so society at that time was kind of focusing on teenagers from the like go-go boots and miniskirts to the records and the Beatles, like lots of things were targeted towards teenagers. Unfortunately for Diane, she wasn't allowed to wear anything that was fashionable at the time. Um, she was the last in her class allowed to shave her legs, which <laughs> apparently became a thing that she got picked on for. Um, she had to la- wear long skirts past her knees. And so then she used to roll them up to try and make them look shorter. But then her mom would find the creases and figured it out. And so she got punished for it. Is
1: this around the same time as Footloose where like rock and roll is the devil's handiwork and she just had to go yes. into a warehouse to dance it out? Like
0: that's <laughs> yeah, pretty what i Yeah, pretty much. And her father even went as far as forcing her to cut her hair short and get it permed in a time oh, when no. it was cool to have super long, super straight hair. Like the girls literally were ironing their hair to make it as straight as possible.
1: Oh no. Remember when I had a perm? <laughs> those were dark days yeah
0: so um it was and it was also let's add we always love to add this to the mix to make our um our candidates so much stronger so it was right around 12 that diane's father Wes, started molesting her oh no so her mother took a night shift at the post office so Wes was in charge of the kids at night according to diane he molested her but never raped her um oh. so this went on for about a year she was having trouble sleeping and staying up late at night kind of waiting for him to come in oh, like Jesus super Christ. nervous waiting for the footsteps terrified anxious and she actually started to become physically ill from lack of sleep so west took her to the doctor and then afterward took her for one of their drives oh fuck. um he drove her out into the desert and he told her to take off her shirt and then when he told her to take off her bra, she became hysterical. She was yelling at him that he was killing her, and he tried. she tried to escape the car. Um, he closed the door and locked it, but there was actually a highway patrolman behind them that they didn't realize was there. Oh, my God. So he gets pulled over, but Diane didn't want her father to go to jail mm. since they wouldn't have food have. or enough money for their home if he did. So she lied and said she had been crying from the shots at the doctor's office. And that they had company at home where she shouldn't be crying, so they were driving to calm down. Oh. And the officer just kept being like, "Are you sure you're okay? Or like, if you're in trouble, I can help you." And she was like, "No, I'm fine." Like, it's oh fine. my god! So the officer talked to Wes outside the car, and then they drove home silently. No reports were ever filed, and Wes never molested her again. Oh. So she has well, I'm no glad idea. She never got. She has no idea what the officer said to him, but whatever it did, whatever was said it never happened again it happened for like a year and then it stopped just as quickly as it started wow so at this point in her life teenage diane has two main goals to run away from home to a safe free haven where someone would love her more than anything else in the world and to become a doctor and have a big house okay yeah those are lofty goals like a normal teenage dream and then the whole you know crappy childhood teenage dream yeah And at 14, her parents, to their credit, paid for a charm school course for her, where she learned to pluck her eyebrows and wear makeup and look prettier. Um, And it gave her a little more confidence. Some of the boys started to kind of take notice of her, especially at church, but she still didn't trust them and kind of shot them down. I'm surprised they paid for a
1: charm school when like they didn't want her to basically be a woman.
0: Yeah. I don't. Maybe because she was 14 at that point. So maybe Mm -hmm. they're like, oh, you're a woman now. I mean, her mom had her at 17. So. Okay. I don't know. All right. Yeah. So around, right around this time, it was when she switched from a silent child to an outward, too-much-spoken teenager. She never stopped talking, for, like a switch flicked. And then she talked to anyone that would listen about her dreams and her goals. And this is where her verbal vomit characteristic came out and carried into adulthood. And from that moment on, she just talk and talk and talk okay so my toddler has that now
1: at three so
0: when they maybe hit the a teenage years switch can, that will
1: flip yeah can yeah. it flip in the other direction maybe and then but then she'll just be like moody and hate mm. me so yeah that's real I guess fun. yeah, yeah.
0: Mm. um when she was 16 and a junior in high school she met stephen downs he was also a junior at moon valley high school just six months older than her he was a ladies man something of like a sensual teenager kind of badass like very edgy he would often like walk around without a shirt on. Okay. I don't like the phrase sensual teenager. He, <laughs> I mean, teenagers typically are, I don't know. Sensual. <laughs> so he turned heads and when she interest- introduced him to her parents, they were immediately concerned with him and told her to date other boys. Okay. She did not. The fact that he made her father unnerved made him that much more attractive. Mm, mm-hmm. yep. So Steve was the first guy to ever make Diane feel pretty and he lived just across the street. So he was always there for her. Their relationship came physical a few months in and she was head over heels for him. Oh. Yep. Sensual Steve. Yeah. But then tragedy struck her life when she was about 17. Oh no. So a series of tragedies. So Steve's parents both died in a head on colli- collision car crash. That is horrifying. They were older. They were like in their seven, late seventies. I think one of them might have been eighty, but they both died in a head-on. And how car old crash. was Steve? Seventeen. And they were eighty. Believe- <laughs> yes. They were older. Damn. I don't know if there was an adoption. Or I don't know. I, I didn't dive into that one, but That yeah.
1: math ain't math.
0: They were older. They're yeah.
1: like everybody else had their kids when they were 14. They were 97 when they died in a car crash.
0: Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. So they both died. Um, and she also loved animals. She had a ton of pets. So her dog got run over by a tractor that Steve was driving, but oh. she blamed her father Wes because he had called the dog and because the dog was paralyzed, Wes shot him. Oh my God. And then they had a nanny goat and her baby West killed the baby and had the nanny goat sent off to slaughter. What's a nanny goat. <laughs> a mother goat. I don't know.
1: I love, okay. I love how you just like write things like verbatim, verbatim. And you can question what a nanny goat was.
0: I don't know. It's a goat and her, it said a nanny goat and, and her baby. So I'm assuming it's just a mother baby mother baby no a mother goat and her baby i don't know a nanny goat, a nanny okay. goat. okay
1: how do you know it i should wasn't, have that up how do you know it wasn't just a goat babysitting
0: somebody else's babies i don't but either way she got sent to slaughter it's, it's really sad i'm not trying to laugh at the dead yeah. goat. Um, yeah nanny, nanny so goat. her cats contracted ringworm what the fuck and diane begged her dad to leave them alone but he said the children could catch the ringworm so he shot them
1: Wait, what? I'm sorry. I'm Googling <laughs> Nanny Goat. All I heard was she shot him. They had ringworms, so he shot the cats? Correct. Jesus Christ. Yep. Um, oh, I- a Nanny Goat is just a female goat, and compare Billy Goat. So oh. Billy Goat is a boy goat, and Nanny, nanny goat, goat is a girl
0: goat? A female goat. <laughs> okay. okay. Thanks for that bit of information. The more you know. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Your your grim fact of the night. (laughs)
1: I'm sorry. Okay, so the ringworm cats (laughs) murdered (laughs) murdered cats. We're getting off the rails here.
0: Okay. Yes, we are. Okay. All right. So uh, then Steve joined the Navy. No, I just can't with the tragedies here. In June of 1972, so even he wasn't around for her. Okay. He went off to to uh
1: if i didn't already know that steve was still alive and threw her under the bus (laughs) with her guns i'd be like and steve died right (laughs) no
0: holy shit yeah so she had a really rough period of time so she actually started scratching her face in anxiety she would like put big like red furrows in her face oh god um around her father because she was like he would yell at her and she would scratch her face um so she graduated high school a semester early because she was pretty smart and had the chance... To <laughs> I like your face. This is the worst story <laughs> ever. But this is why this is important, because this is what leads to her being the way that she is. <laughs> yeah, but like, yeah. holy shit. I,
1: I, <laughs> I'm I'm just doing the mouth-gaping open thing like Laura does, where she was like, this is not helpful for a podcast. But like, what the fuck?
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So she graduated high school semester early. She's mm-hmm. pretty smart. And Super had, smart, yep. yep. And had the chance to go to the Pacific Coast baptist bible college in orange california to become a christian ministry person (laughs) okay i feel like i typed that wrong but i don't know sure a christian ministry person so she jumped at the chance hoping to switch into pre-med after uh she only lasted a year though so when she got there she was actually wildly popular for the first time in her life the boys flocked to her and rumors spread she kissed boys and then did other things with them but remember this is a Baptist Bible College. Yeah, I'm like the the best place to get promiscuous, I guess. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. So when these rumors became more fact than fiction, she was expelled for promiscuity. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. And so she returned to her parents' home in Arizona. She got a job as a waitress and then a receptionist. She was just biding her time until Steve got home from the Navy. She was promiscuous girl. And when he did get home, he got a job at the Chandler Post Office about 45 minutes from Phoenix. They tried to be together as much as possible, but her father kind of kept them apart. He would wait for Diane to get out of work and then watch her to make sure she went straight home. Okay. So a few months after her 18th birthday, she didn't come home from a date one night. She decided she was going to live with Steve. Okay. Her father was furious and showed up with a shotgun to Steve's house and told him he would either marry Diane or bring her home. So Steve agreed to marry her. And they got married a week later, November 13th, 1973. That's like a literal shotgun wedding, but Steve was she was Diane's not pregnant. ticket out. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Um, but it was quickly clear that this marriage was not the stuff made for movies. Okay. Um, in the first week of their marriage, Steve told Diane he had a date with another girl that he had asked a month ago, so he couldn't cancel it. What? He asked Diane to iron his pants for his date, and she did.
1: What the... Oh, my God. He then
0: went out until 3 a.m. Okay,
1: I feel... I actually feel really bad for Diane.
0: Yeah, she's... Got to That's tough. Rough upbringing. That's and here tough. she just wants someone to love her unconditionally. And she thinks she's found it in Steve. And, and instead then...
1: her husband's like, can you iron my khakis? I have a date.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so he claimed his car had broken down, but his pants were pristine. And that's the one note that Diane made from that night. Wow. Um, so Steve loved hot rod cars, his buddies and girls over Diane. Um, Diane had turned to Steve wanting nothing more than someone that would love her unconditionally. And she had to pivot when she realized that relationship was just physical. Pivot! (laughs) I always think of Ross from Friends. Pivot! So Steve changed his mind and said he didn't want kids for years. Um, Although he had originally told her he wanted to start a family immediately and have a big family. So she threw away her birth control and secretly conceived their first child. Mm, That's how you trap a man. Mm -hmm. If she couldn't find someone to love her unconditionally, she would make them... Oh, my God. she figured once she had the children she wanted, she didn't really need Steve anyway.
1: Oh, I like I can't decide if I love or hate that journey for her.
0: <laughs> yeah, you're gonna hate it later.
1: Well, no, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I know how the story ends. It doesn't have a happy ending in this moment. I'm just taking yeah. it, this one slice. I feel good that she's gonna have a baby that's gonna love her unconditionally. But no, I take it back because I know how the story ends. Yeah. Fuck, I hate the story.
0: Yeah. So Steve was in and out of work. He had the hopes of becoming a model. He was actually given a role in a shaving commercial. But (laughs) while he was waiting for this commercial to actually happen, um, and it was during her pregnancy, he was working on a car and something in it exploded into flames. And he actually got burned badly enough that he ended up in the hospital. And he had all of these like burn wounds and blisters and stuff. And so the modeling agency dropped him and said they couldn't wait for him to heal. Um, so his modeling dreams of fame were gone. Um, after that, he was in and out of jobs and they were in and out of Diane's parents' house. Um, Steve was not thrilled at first about the pregnancy, but he warmed to the idea of having a child, um, and was hoping for a boy. It is wild that all of the pieces of this story
1: belong to one story. You're like... There's and I'm murdered. not even
0: telling all of them. There's other pieces in there that I'm like, that's not that important. You're I'll like, just there's move on. murdered goats
1: and <laughs> car explosions and yeah. modeling careers and yeah. wild.
0: Yeah. So he was really hoping for a boy. So Christy Ann was born on October 7th, Oops. 1974. Mm-hmm. Luckily, she was a great baby. She slept well. She ate well. Just the type of baby Diane needed. What's Diane, that like? Um... That's actually great. My kids were the same. You had good yeah, babies. I did have good My babies. My babies were not good babies. <laughs> no, they were not. No. <laughs> um, so Diane often said that when she carried Christy, she fell in love. Aww. She was in love with her baby before she was even born. Aww. When Christy was six months old, Diane left one day and signed up for the Air Force.
1: <laughs> what?
0: <laughs> God, I can't. I can't take anymore. What the fuck? Yep. So she signed up for the Air Force. Um, And left the baby with Steve? Yep. She she was upset she didn't have a career and felt trapped. Um, So she headed off to basic training in Texas while Steve was left with their baby. Oh, my God. (laughs) Shocking to no one, Diane didn't do well in basic training, and her stint in the Air Force lasted three weeks. uh (laughs) I she t- called Steve <laughs> daily, begging him to get her out or she would end up going AWOL. Ultimately, she was discharged, not because she was a young mother, although Steve did try desperately to contact like um, people in the military to be like, she's a mom. She needs to come home. Um, <clears throat> but ultimately, she was discharged because she somehow managed to get a, like, a ton of blisters. <laughs> I think they were just like, you know what, bitch, get out. <laughs> like, we don't need you anyway. She's like, I I burnt my feet and I, I just can't, I can't, I don't know how much more I can take. This is is the beginning. So so she and Chrissy spent the next months in transit. Whenever Steve was out of work, he would ship the girls back to Diane's parents because they were too expensive. Eventually her parents told him they were his problem now and not to send them anymore. (laughs) Oh yeah. So this really just plays into the whole Diane just wanted to be loved and no one really loved her the way that she needed to be loved. Their uh, Marriage obviously was in a bad spot, so you know what makes marriage better? More another babies! baby! Yay! Yep. Again, Diane threw away her birth control and conceived, conceived a child quickly. Again, Steve was pissed and didn't want another baby, although he did warm to the idea of maybe getting the son he wanted, but mm. he knew they couldn't afford more than two children, so this would be his last chance at a son, Cheryl, <laughs>
1: I already knew it. I I already knew it was Sherilyn.
0: Sherilyn was born January 10th, 1976, two days before her father's 21st birthday. Good Lord. So I forget in this whole thing that they're so young. They're Mm -hmm. just kids. They're like just kids themselves. Yep. Yep. Where Christy had been the blessing of a child that Diane needed, Cheryl started screaming the minute her lungs hit the air and never stopped. Mm-hmm. A baby conceived to try to fill in the holes in Diane's wall of love turned out to be a fussy screaming child who wasn't even deemed cute. She, she, was,
1: she was the grenade in she their marriage. She was like
0: bald, big ears, <laughs> small eyes. She was like the only baby. Aww. Um, she was quite homely as a child and da- did not fill Diane with the loving feeling she had felt when Christy was born. She lost that loving feeling. <laughs> she did. <laughs> she, she did. So after Cheryl was born, Diane and Steve decided they didn't want or need any more children. And one of them would need to get fixed. But of course, it was cheaper for a vasectomy than for a tubal ligation. So uh-huh. Steve got a vasectomy, but didn't return for his 10-week check to make sure it worked. And Diane got pregnant again. Oh, My gosh. Steve claimed she was having an affair because he had had a vasectomy, but Diane knew the only person she had been with was Steve. So Steve got checked, and sure enough, the vasectomy hadn't worked. Oops. Diane decided to get an abortion. Okay. She knew that they couldn't handle another child, especially if it came out like Cheryl and wasn't loved. (laughs) Oh. Because Cheryl was a handful. Oh, my God. She's colicky and, like, just not... No, I get it. What these two young people in their volatile marriage could handle I get it so Steve actually would have accepted the third pregnancy but decided it was her body her choice Uh, he went and got the vasectomy again and this time it was guaranteed that it had worked Mm. so for the next two years Diane was at a loss of what to do with her life they were still on a farm so she convinced Steve to let her get horses she loved and cared for them but when they had to move to Flagstaff not even six months later she was devastated that she had to sell them did she use a coupon to get (laughs) her horses I I, I do not know (laughs) They moved on Christy's second birthday, October 7th, when Cheryl was nine months old and just growing out of her colic. Mm. On Halloween, so that's October 7th, on Halloween, Diane packed up both kids and left Steve. (laughs) I was like, Halloween
1: is not October
0: 7th. (laughs) No. So that was October 7th they moved. On Halloween, Diane packed up both kids and left Steve for the first time. Okay. (laughs) Number one. Number one, yeah. Steve (laughs) came home from work from his second job and found them gone. And he was like, what the hell? He was like, hallelujah. It's (laughs) quiet. Get me a beer. He was like, we weren't even having problems. I don't understand what just happened. Uh, She had moved to Texas to live with her father's brother. Steve figured it out by looking at the phone records. He found calls to Texas for about a month. So he called her there and told her that she had left of her own and she could come back on her own. Uh, The job her cousin had promised her in Texas didn't work out after about a week really long time frames in yeah, this world. Really, yeah, she's really she's
1: committed to her yeah. lifestyle. So she
0: returned home with both kids 3 weeks later. Wow. <laughs>
1: 3 weeks is like her maximum for anything. She's like joined the Air Force 3 weeks. Moved to Texas
0: 3, three weeks. weeks. Yeah. So you'd think she's like 30 at this part, but she's literally only 21 years old checks out all of this happened you know it checks out well yeah
1: everything's like three weeks so
0: so their marriage really fit into the school of like can't live with him her can't live without him her right it was full of passion and jealousy and estrangements and reconciliation um she took off again at 22 working as a concrete truck driver for three weeks (laughs) no month (laughs) she made it that extra week (laughs) and having sitters watch the kids all day um she was actually really good at it but it only lasted a month when her boss raped her Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yep. So she ran back to Steve.
1: Oh, Diane poor took, Diane.
0: Then Diane took the kids to California where her parents were living. They gave her six weeks to settle herself in. And when she didn't find a suitable job in that timeline, she went back home. Steve took her back every time. Okay. Yep. So two years after her abortion, she went to a county fair where there was a right to life booth. It showed a six week fetus and Diane was appalled. Realizing that a uh, six weeks the fetus had arms and legs, and she thought it was just a ball of goo when she had had her abortion, and she was suddenly struck with immense regret and shame, she became obsessed with this baby that she had had aborted that she named Carrie. She just knew it was a girl, and named it Carrie, and thought that Carrie was living in limbo somewhere. She knew she had to conceive again so she could give Carrie a, <laughs> a soul. I wish everyone could see Marina's face right now.
1: Oh, my God. This, Like, I I can't. This is like, I
0: just it's can't. It's absolutely bananas. <laughs> Yum. So um, she knew she had to conceive again. She became obsessed with it. Steve refused to get his vasectomy reversed. <laughs> He's like, snip, snap, oh, snip, snap. He was oh like, Oh, my no. God. So Diane decided to find a donor. And for the first time in her marriage, she had an affair. Three, actually. She was trying to find just the perfect man to be the father for her child. Um, and she found him. He was a 19-year-old that they worked with, Russ Phillips. She had sex with him when she was most fertile and got instantly pregnant.
1: Why are these people so <laughs> fertile? I don't know. Like, just the craziest she people are so fertile. She knew fertile. exactly when
0: she was fertile and would, like, just have sex right then and there and get pregnant. <sighs> um, but so... She, um, Steve found out about the affair and confronted her at Russ's house. She would leave at like 5 a.m. when she didn't have to be at work till like 8 a.m. I mean, it's kind of <laughs> obvious you're having an affair yeah. when your So he followed her sterile. one day to, the, to Russ's home. Oh, well, she, he didn't know she was pregnant yet, but a big scuffle ensued and the roommates pulled a gun and he was like, never mind, I'm out. And so he left. And when Diane got home, she told him he, she was pregnant. Steve had a vasectomy, so he knew it wasn't his baby. Uh huh. So both Russ and Steve tried to convince her to get an abortion. But she would hear none of it. Then Russ tried to convince her to leave Steve and come marry him before the baby was born, but she would hear none of that as well. Um, so I'm sorry. I'm sorry to laugh. So the boy,
1: the boy that Steve wanted the whole time, wasn't even his. Correct. <laughs> Holy shit! This is like days of and our lives. Were, Remember when we used to actually, watch that yeah. in
0: like high school? It's like the turkey baster shit. This there is was wild. actually a point in her pregnancy where Steve said to her, "If it's a girl, he'll keep it." and it'll be his. But if it's a boy, they had to get the fuck out because if he couldn't have a boy, he's not going to have someone else's boy. Oh, wow. I would have thought it was the opposite. No. Um, And there was some concern early on that she was miscarrying, but in the end, she had a normal pregnancy, and Stephen Daniel was born on December 29th, 1979. And she named it after him. (laughs) Good lord. Yep. They called him Daniel or Danny. And uh, Diane's ideals were shattered when she had a boy. She was picturing replacing her Carrie but realized oh, she had given no. birth to a completely different child altogether. That's Steve, what happens. Mm-hmm, yeah. So Steve knew he wasn't his son, but he took to him instantly. Aww. Diane never imagined Steve would love her enough to forgive, forget and treat his chi- treat this child like his own, but he did. Aww. and their home life was rough. Yeah. So Diane and Steve fought all the time, often physically. Um, one time they were wrestling and she hit her head so hard. She had like a concussion oh, God. and started to black out sometimes. From it, um, they were always at each other's throats, and so Diane finally snapped and started taking out her anger on her children.
1: Okay, so now I can go back to hating Diane.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. So she would take her anger down on her children. She was hitting them, shaking them, spanking them. She mm. would leave marks and bruises from her fingernails.
1: Oh my God. Um,
0: Cheryl always got the worst of it. She always blamed Cheryl for breaking things. If somebody she was broke the something, oldest? the middle, middle. If somebody broke something, it was Cheryl. And, and she would always get punished in discipline. Oh. And so Diane had kind of turned into her father when it came to discipline. Oh. And the poor girls never knew which way was up. Sometimes Diane would dote on them, buying them presents and dresses and bringing home pets. And then the next thing they knew, they were being beaten in anger and frustration. Was Diane diagnosed as bipolar at any point? No.
1: Okay. Doesn't mean she's not. No. Just means she wasn't diagnosed. Correct. Yeah. Okay.
0: Um, so this story takes an even wilder turn. I can't.
1: No, no, I I reject it. <laughs> I, I you wish have I
0: was making this up. I feel like it's a weird like spin the wheel. What comes next? You have to not <laughs> laugh when you give like the most depressing details. I know. So in April 1980, she was watching Donahue show where they were talking about surrogate mothers. A young couple with a bar- barren wife wanted a surrogate to bear their child for them diane immediately wrote the company volunteering to be a surrogate why are you saying surrogate it's surrogate it's surrogate surrogate no a surrogate no
1: no (laughs) it is very much surrogate
0: okay well that's not how i pronounce it
1: (laughs) (laughs) okay well you're wrong you're wrong
0: Okay, so apparently it is surrogate. It's, I told you. <laughs> yeah, and I was wrong. <laughs> you were, were wrong, and you're welcome. <laughs> um, so she, she wrote to the company volunteering to be a surrogate. Mm-hmm. She made up a few lies and twisted a few facts, and on paper, she seemed like the perfect candidate. I'm sure she did. Danny's father had been begging her to leave Steve and marry him since before the baby was even born, And Diane did leave Steve and moved in with Russ in September 1980, and it lasted one week. Oh, that's... Yeah. Because Diane realized her marriage status might be a key factor in becoming a surrogate, so she went back to Steve. Okay. And honestly, this poor guy, Russ, really got the short end of the stick. He thought he would get to marry Diane. He was kind of head over heels for her and their son. Um, But she played him along and would only let him see the danny when she needed him to babysit oh um and she would often string him along and say like if he continued to help out one day maybe she would marry him yeah poor guy so diane had realized she could get paid ten thousand dollars to be a surrogate mother yeah and so she signed the contract and the first step was to see a psychiatrist (laughs) yep Mm -hmm. so the first psychiatrist had doubts about diane claiming that there is a considerable neurotic interplay both in this marriage and this woman's total adjustment to life. You don't say. Yep. So more testing was done, and although she had a high IQ, small red flag showed up in other parts of the test, such as social cause and effect reasoning, things mm-hmm. like that. Yep. So these findings were consistent with, but not absolutely diagnostic, of a major psychopathology. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So she failed her first psych text test. Okay. The first psychologist thought she wouldn't give the baby up when she had had it. That was their concern. (sighs) Ooh, okay. Which I could see, I could see why they would be concerned about that.
1: Because if it was a girl, it'd be Carrie and she would be like, (laughs) "This baby mine now? Yeah. Yeah.
0: But the agency didn't tell her that. They thought that the first psychiatrist might be like biased against surrogacy to begin with. And, um, they delayed the proceedings trying to find a psychologist that would pass her. Okay. And so they thought maybe the first one was biased and they set up a second one and she passed barely. Even that psychiatrist found that she had a histrionic personality disorder, Mm -hmm. which histrionic means like acting. Uh Um, But she was accepted as a surrogate. Surrogate. (laughs) Um, and right about now, her marriage finally collapsed. And after finding a note in the laundry with another woman's phone number and address on it, she asked Steve for a divorce. Wow. Now that she got approved for now surrogacy. that she got approved to be a surrogate. Yep. And wow. she was just waiting for them to call her to go down t- and get and get inseminated. And this is where we're going to stop because after Thank- this comes all the lovers <sighs> and the Lou <laughs> Lou. Oh, forgot. I like forgot about Lou. Wow. And the investigation and the trial and all of that. So um, yeah, so this is definitely a two-parter that was just her life, but you need all of these details to really understand the mentalness of this woman.
1: I need a shot of vodka (laughs) and a shower is what I need now. Like this that was a roller coaster and it, it ends in blood and feathers we already know it, that it does
0: yes it does jesus yeah. christ
1: well if you're enjoying listening to grim which i'm currently not but <laughs> please rate and follow us wherever you listen to podcasts to make sure you don't miss any episodes if you listen to us on apple podcasts make our day by leaving us a written review you can find our page on facebook by searching grim colon a true crime podcast if you want to subscribe to our patreon you can go to patreon and search grim colon a true crime podcast follow us on Instagram at Grim Crime Podcast for information on future episodes and case photos. If you want to send us a case suggestion or just say hi, you can email us at Grim Crime at gmail.com. Listen, learn and stay alive until next time because the future is grim.